Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on writer and avid European football fan, Stephen Ray. Take a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Ray. Um, I'm originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland. I grew up there in the 70s and the 80s. And when I was 25, I met an American uh, in London and we ended up getting married. Uh, We came to live in the States um, and we bought a house just six months before Hurricane Katrina. Um, I wrote a book all about Hurricane Katrina and the local pub that I went to called Finn McCool's about the soccer team that we started, what happened to the players and the locals and everyone connected and then in and around that pub um, and what happened to us before, during and after Katrina. It's called Finn McCool's Football Club. Um, I married a girl from North Carolina, but we actually ended up living in New Orleans. We came here in 2004. I've now been here 14 years. I'm going to read you a little passage. Uh, This is chapter four of my book, just about how we ended up living in New Orleans and what my impressions were. When we moved to the States, I had uh, explored a lot of America. I had already been to all 50 states. I had traveled extensively around this country and I thought I knew it pretty well. But you don't really know anywhere until you live there, I suppose. And initially, we were going to come to New Orleans for one year. Um, Obviously, like I said, 14 years later, I'm still here. So this is a chapter entitled Living in America. A few years ago, my wife Julie and I had a long layover in Miami, and we bought a map of the states to pick somewhere to live. I suggested New England, but she ruled it out because of their harsh winters and blew in her hands, rubbed them together, then put on a third cardigan as the temperature dipped into the 80s. I I should explain here in chapter three, I relate how Julie was permanently cold when we lived over in the UK. Anyway, she wanted to live in the South, but I vetoed North Carolina as I wasn't moving to a new continent, only to set up home down the road from the in-laws. We compromised on New Orleans, an oasis of decadence in the sober desert of the Bible Belt a city we'd both visited and enjoyed. In June 2004, we flew to Charlotte, loaded up Julie's old car with two suitcases of clothes and a box of CDs, and coaxed the wheezing escort 700 miles south. We checked into a yucky motel 20 miles from the French Quarter and spent a week looking for somewhere to rent. It's tough when you don't know the going monthly rate, the good neighbourhoods, or even the city layout. We started with apartment complexes, but they were either too far from downtown, no point moving to unique, evocative New Orleans and living in the suburbs, or wildly expensive. We zeroed in the district three miles west of the quarter called Uptown because it's upriver from the original city. It is also built on higher ground. We were unaware of this detail at the time, but the following year everyone was an expert on the city's topography. By day five of our search, we were fed up, discouraged and ready to jump at anything. We viewed an apartment in a block on prestigious St. Charles Avenue, the city's second most famous street, with narrow, dark, depressing corridors like a cheap hotel in a Manhattan murder mystery movie. 
The agent banged on the door to make sure the current art student occupant was out, as apparently she was usually still in bed when prospective tenants turned up at 3pm. Inside, hundreds of rose petals were scattered on the floor. Looks like there was something romantic going on here last night, said the agent perceptively. Nothing romantic about the so-called view, though. A two-foot square barred window overlooking a wall where two pigeons sat in their own filth. Ours for just $1,400 a month. We kept looking. We were constantly getting changed to use phone booths to set up appointments as we didn't have a cell phone. And in desperation, we resorted to going to a rental company. We left after five minutes because we couldn't stand the smarmy staff. Now this place here, oh, it will be so good for you. It's ideal for you too, exactly what you guys want. I wanted to scream, how the hell do you know what we want? We've just walked in, you haven't asked us anything. You've only just met us. You don't even know our names. But I didn't. We extended our motel stay and continued searching. We got lost and ended up outside a one-bedroom apartment with a for rent sign, which turned out to be the first privately owned and fully furnished place we'd found. We wouldn't need to buy a bed, a microwave or anything and took it on the spot. Or at least we tried to. In Belfast, we had converted our savings to two US currency drafts worth tens of thousands of dollars drawing on a New York bank. But Judy's bank in North Carolina told us there would be a $70 fee to cash them. At another branch, they said the first branch were talking nonsense and they wouldn't charge us anything. But the New York bank might. How much might they charge us, we asked. They had no idea, but suggested we deposit the money into an account with them and wait and see. Uh, No thanks. So we took them to New Orleans only for another bank to quote us $224 to open an account. The New York lot wanted $100 per check and they would levy a $12 charge on each as well. I couldn't believe it. Here we stood with our life savings, ready to start a relationship with a financial institution from whom we would one day be getting a mortgage, loans, whatever, and they refused to waive even one of the $12 fees. I pompously said that on principle I would rather return home to cash them than pay such outrageous charges. An obvious stupid lie, though actually it would have been cheaper to fly back to Charlotte and cash them there for $70. Thankfully our neighbour put us in touch with another bank around the corner who didn't charge us a cent, so we paid the rent and signed a one-year lease. Once we settled in and got over the giddy excitement of having found an apartment, we realised the bizarre Mexican owner had stuffed it with a lot of furniture and clutter. An awful lot. It was crammed with every cheap ornament, plastic religious icon and general bit of useless tat she'd ever come across in her life. She lived alone but owned 11 chairs with an additional four on the front porch. We suspected she she was head of a Hispanic coven and she did indeed turn into a witch when she sued us the following year. But that's another story. Any misplaced piece of furniture around the city in 2004, wound up in that house. If you mumbled to yourself that summer, I'm sure I left that patio chair here somewhere, then that's where it is now. A plastic daffodil skyscraper last seen in the day of the Triffids dominated the dining table, forcing us to look at each other sideways during meals. After a week, we both had necks like Stretch Armstrong. The cupboard smelt musty, the toilet broke the second day, and there was dog poo under the table and bed but it was home. We had a to-do list that lasted for weeks and we practically lived in Walmart. The biggest difference between the shops in the UK and the US is their return policies. At home, I'd psych myself up for days to take back an item. 
then call friends to track down a bag belonging to the store where I bought it, make sure the receipt was in pristine condition, and rack my brain to come up with a valid reason why I was entitled to my money back. No matter what you returned, you had to steal yourself the inevitable Gestapo-like interrogation. What's wrong with it? Did you take it out of the package? Was it at room temperature the whole time, sir? I'm sorry. Our rules are unless you bring it back dipped in liquid gold and smelling of lavender, then we can't possibly refund you the 58 pence. In New Orleans, you march in, hand it over and get the cash back. No questions asked. You often have up to 90 days to do it, and that policy is something I abused regularly. When my little brother and little sister visited, I bought a table tennis table and a DVD player to keep them occupied, then returned them when they left. Walmart is like a big, wonderful library. If the best thing about shopping in the States is the slack return policy, the worst thing is dealing with sales assistants. They are sniveling, creepy liars, all of them. They make sleazy used car dealers in Britain look like Mother Teresa. Does anyone ever believe anything they tell them? No, really, do they? When they say things like, those pink baggy jeans and yellow belt make you look really slim, or I have this very B-day at home and it keeps me minty fresh. Has anyone in the history of the world nodded and replied, really? Well, you look like an honest fellow, so I'll take it. We stored the porcelain angels, blew up Jesus, Julie's 32 sweaters and nine of the chairs and hunted for a sofa bed. The furniture showroom staff were so slimy I showered every time I got home. They insisted on telling you their life story or swearing this particular fabric was created for the king of Siam and would change your life. After weeks of this, we met a Harris sales girl who kept rolling her eyes and complaining to us about the owner's granddaughter in for work experience. When we asked for a delivery discount because we only lived a mile away, she threw her hands in the air and yelled, what do you want me to do? This thing's cheap. We find her. We found her honest attitude refreshing and snapped it up. You cannot buy anything in an American store without a salesperson trying to sell you something else. We picked a computer and then fought a two-hour pitch battle with salesmen, managers, cashiers, and God knows who else before managing to escape. It was like a scene from Night of the Living Dead as we backed towards the exit while they attacked in waves, thrusting ink cartridges, boxes of paper and surge protectors at us. If you make the rookie mistake of standing still for two seconds after making a purchase, they pounce on you with the dreaded phrase, extended warranty. Would you be taking our extended warranty with this purchase, sir? No thanks. You should consider it. It's peace of mind for just twelve ninety nine a month. No thanks. I'm intending to eat this apple quite soon. But anything could happen, sir. You might drop it when you leave the store. Then I'll pick it up and give it a brush. But it may have been contaminated with a life-threatening disease. With this insurance, you'll be covered for such an eventuality. I'll take my chances. Look, I've been eating it while you were speaking. I'm almost finished. But you could still choke on a seed, sir. We have seed-induced coffee and fit cover for nine ninety nine. No thanks. All done. See. Then how about our apple core disposal policy? If you can't find a trash can within 100 yards, we'll pay you $10. And As if moving continents wasn't hard enough to deal with in America, New Orleans is considered a law unto itself. And what should have been simple tasks turned into tedious Tolkien tales of epic endurance, like when I had to get a Louisiana driver's license. 
The Office of Motor Vehicles website was hopeless, so I drove to their office. But there was no information to ask, and to ask a question, I had to join the line. Here you don't get a designated driving test appointment, but queue up for a slot. And as it was August, the office was packed with students wanting to sit the test. The queue snaked out the door and into the parking lot, so I tried the next day, but it was just as crowded. And the next. And the next. I joined the line and I stretched so far it met me as soon as I got out of my car. Eventually I discovered I couldn't transfer my UK licence and had to do the local test. So I filled out the forms and returned the next morning. I queued up again. I took the eye test, but had waited so long they were closing and said to come back tomorrow for the theory and road sign exams. I returned the next day. I stood in line again. I failed the road sign exam. It started easy. Things like, you see a white sign with a large P in the middle and a red line through it. Does this mean no parking, no paying, no push-ups, no Portuguese? But then came questions on types of roadside reflectors and the difference between dotted white lines and solid yellow lines and all kinds of stuff I had no idea about. I probably should have read the book they gave me and the test instructions. I found out later you're allowed to skip questions you don't know the answer to. This would explain why the staff were scratching their heads and calling over colleagues, as I don't think anyone had ever failed it before. So I had to go back, queue up again, and retake it. Then I had to return to sit the actual driving exam, and I distinctly remember asking if there was anything I needed to bring. I was told I needed nothing. I returned the next day, queued up again. At the desk, they asked if I had my insurance with me. No, I didn't. I went back the next day, queued up again. NASA trains astronauts faster. When I finally sat the test, it was so quick I thought I'd failed. I literally drove around the block and then had to park between two white lines so far apart Stevie Wonder could have done it. I scored 96%, losing marks for not pausing long enough at a stop sign. The examiner advised me to count to 10 in future. Yeah, right. We had completed such official rites of passage and we were getting used to the permanent sweat sheen, giant cockroaches and smell of dog poo when I looked out the window one day in August and saw three different neighbours loading up vehicles. I investigated and found out they were evacuating from Hurricane Ivan, which explained why those blokes down the road had been hammering plywood over their windows. I'd assumed they were having a bond farmer protecting the glass. New Orleans had hurricanes? It was news to me. The traffic was mental and it took seven hours to crawl to a bed and breakfast 120 miles away. Ivan jogged east and crashed into Mississippi, with our wind damage limited to a few leaves on a porch. I joked about the terrible destruction natural disasters could inflict and swore to never hightail it out of Dodge again. Funny how these throwaway remarks come back to haunt you. By November, Julie had a job. I was a house husband but one who couldn't cook or iron, so not so much house and really just a husband. And the presidential election was in full swing. Dozens of Democratic campaigners gathered on the neutral ground along St. Charles every evening in all kinds of weather. And in the midst of rush hour traffic, they jumped up and down, waved placards and yelled at drivers to vote for their man. Though I admired the dedication of these political cheerleaders, did they believe they'd change voting intentions or that their actions would be the tipping point for wavering citizens? Did any Republican-leaning redneck roll down his truck window, lean out to spit, tip back his baseball cap, turn down Leonard Skinner and say, dang it, I was going to vote for George W, but darn, that poster-waving mob makes a convincing argument. The heck with politics and campaigns. I'm going with the chanting crowd bouncing about in the rain. 
It cooled down, cooled down, and then cooled down some more. New Orleans' first Christmas snow in 50 years was a wonderful fairy tale sight. Of course, viewing the apartment during the wax-melting, searing summer, we hadn't thought to ask about the heating. There was none. After sweating like hooded rapists in a disco for months, we were now building up. We were now bundling up at bedtime like Arctic adventurer Ranulph finds. Judy was simply delighted by this turn of events, and I don't exaggerate when I write that she slept in three layers of clothing, a woolly hat, scarf, and gloves. The only exposed skin was the very tip of her nose, and when she needed to breathe, it would pop up from underneath the covers like a submarine periscope. We were so miserable we checked into a bed and breakfast on Christmas night. The electric heaters from Walmart were worthless in a home with 20-foot-high ceilings designed to keep the room cool, but we cranked them full blast anyway and huddled around like picketing Yorkshire miners warming their hands outside a harsh winter in northern England. By the end of the year, we'd had enough and decided to buy a house. I returned the heaters to the library. So that's the end of, um, that's the end of, chap- of that chapter. And I, the, 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 the book then continues and, and, and follows us as we settle into New Orleans. Um, and then we have to evacuate whenever Katrina hits, and it's a very haphazard evacuation. Um, when, when the book came out, it, it was uh, very, I was lucky enough that it was very well received by the likes of the Washington Post and the BBC. And I, I, I did a lot of appearances and readings and interviews, uh, both in the States and in Ireland and in the UK. Um, it was sold a, a UK version uh, was came out in the uh, following year, um, and it was slightly different. Uh, soccer was changed to football, and so on. Um, and it was optioned for a movie. I flew to California and met a, a movie producer out there who was originally from New Orleans, um, but uh, nothing as yet has ever come of that. Um, We'll see if, if One Dead does become a movie. What did happen last year, though, was uh, a New York publisher uh, re-released the book in paperback form, um, which was unusual for my publisher to, to sell the rights, uh, the paperback rights. Um, it was a really nice uh, new version that came out. That What I was most pleased about was that they used photographs. One of the things that people kept saying to me about the book was there were so many characters in it and I featured so many different people that if they had photographs just to just to put a, a face to the name it would have helped so they did that and they they published full uh, full color photographs and they also had me write uh, another chapter at the end and update the story so that featured what had happened to me personally it featured what had happened to Finn McCool's The Irish Pub that the book is centred around and what had happened to the people I write about in the book, both the, my friends and the soccer, the players from the soccer team. So that was good and it was enjoyable just to revisit it, uh, revisit the story because it has been a few years now since it came out. Um, something else that happened was that the Walker Percy Centre at, Loy- at Loyola University asked me to teach a writing class. So in about 2011, I started teaching there and I, I really enjoyed that. And a sort of not-for-credit class 
So I taught there for a few years and that grew and, and did pretty well to the extent that I ended up leaving a few years later and setting up my own writing school. I now teach uh, evening classes. I teach, I have evening writing classes at Treo. Uh, Treo is on Tulane Avenue and ironically, it is owned by the, the previous owners of Finn McCool's. The Irish couple who owned Finn's and set it up and ran it, Stephen and Pauline Patterson, they then sold Finn's two years ago and they set up uh, uh, this sort of cocktail bar called Treo, which has an art gallery upstairs. And that's where I teach. They close off the art gallery for me at nights and uh, I, I teach up there for two adults. I'm teaching them writing. The, the same New York publisher that came up with the, 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 re, the new version of Finn's also approached me to see if I'd be willing to write a book on the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup. Initially, that was called An American's Guide to the 2018 World Cup. So I spent uh, a, a lot of time uh, researching the book and writing the book on the basis that the USA team would qualify for the World Cup. They, they had qualified for every World Cup since 1990. So, so uh, 24 years for the, every single World Cup for the last 24 years the States had appeared at. And of course, they picked this World Cup uh, not, to, not to fail to qualify. So suddenly the Americans weren't at the World Cup and I had a book written uh, as a guide. So that book then needed uh, reworked. It's now called World Cup Fever and it comes out uh, this summer. Uh, April, actually, I think is the publication date. So that's a, a book on the history of the World Cup. It's a book about how the Americans have, have fared uh, throughout since 1930. And I actually really did enjoy writing it. It's I'm a I'm a soccer fan. I love the World Cup, and it was a bit of a labour of love. Uh, and I hope that uh, sales won't take too much of a battering because they're not going to be in the finals. Talking of the World Cup, I just want to leave you with a little piece um, about uh, back in just after Hurricane Katrina, Northern Ireland played uh, England in a World Cup qualification game. I had evacuated to California and I found myself in um, uh, Las Vegas, actually. So Northern Ireland were playing England uh, and, and I went to an English bar to watch that game. And, and this is just uh, a little piece from, from, from chapter 21 of my book. I wouldn't advise going on vacation while suffering emotional upheaval. I'm sure there are doctors and psychologists who extol the therapeutic benefits of getting away from your worries for a while in the midst of a draining and traumatic experience, but it didn't work for me. What I would recommend instead is watching Northern Ireland beat England at soccer. I can pinpoint the upturn, upturn in my mood to an exact time and place. 1.55pm Pacific Time, Wednesday, September the 7th, 2005, the Crown and Anchor Bar, Las Vegas, Nevada. The instant the final whistle blew for that World Cup qualifying game in Belfast, I began to feel better, no question. Like Churchill's The End of the Beginning. It had taken me nine days to run through the full gamut of emotions, 
But as I left Las Vegas that afternoon, I felt ready to pull myself together and get on with my life. Christ knows how long it would have taken me if we'd been crushed. Perhaps I'd still be a wreck today. I thought it would rejuvenate me to get out into the wilderness away from pictures of our dying city and reports of wide-scale lawlessness. So I spent four days in Arizona and Nevada. But it didn't work. The wide, empty spaces of the West only offered more time to brood on what was happening. I passed my days insistently wondering about the variables, the what happens now and the where do we go next. Maybe it would have been different if I'd canoed down the Orinoco or taken an adventure that occupied my mind and had me focus on the task. Instead, the endless barren wasteland stretching in front of us only exacerbated my gloom. Uh, we stayed in La- I stayed in Las Vegas and I discovered the remote expat outpost called the Crown and Anchor, miles from the glitzy, glitzy strip, was showing the Northern Ireland match. Inside was a heaving mass of English red and white, Conference attendees from Liverpool, gamblers from Bristol and families from Sunderland mobbed the bar and shouted orders at the swamp barmaid. I corkscrewed my way through a 300-strong crowd to a spot in front of the big screen. With just a dollar to my name and smarting from paying a cover charge, I had no intention of fighting to get served. The first half finished scoreless and we'd done okay, but I wasn't getting carried away. In the second half, we didn't crumble. I started to believe we could snatch a tie. And then in the 74th minute, the unthinkable happened. I can still see it clearly today. I can picture exactly how it happened. Even writing about it gives me chills. My first instinct is that David Healy is offside. I see an English defender raise his arm, appealing. Crucially, the assistant referee is in the TV frame. I see him running, pointing downwards. Healy's run is good, time to perfection. Healy strikes the ball. The net bulges. We've scored against England. We're leading 1-0. For a heartbeat, the bar fell silent. You would have heard David Beckham's diamond earring drop. Then I went nuts. Real honest-to-goodness, jumping up and punching the air, stepping on people's toes, careening into everyone while yelling at the top of my voice and hugging strangers as I screamed hysterically nuts. I have watched soccer for more than 30 years on an old six inhabited continents. Never have I had such an outpouring of emotion after a goal. It was after the game, I was overwrought. It had been a hell of a week. I blinked my way into the blazing sun on 110 degree heat. Four days in the hot arid climate after humid Louisiana had left my lips cracked and bleeding. My head was throbbing from the excitement. My throat was hoarse from a mixture of the desert wind and shouting during the match. But for the first time since Katrina hit, I felt good, really good. That was author Stephen Ray, who was reading from his book, Finn McCool's Football Club, The Birth, Death and Resurrection of a Pub Soccer Team in the City of the Dead. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a new community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.